Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. In our first episode, we hear from the Philanthropy Journal's graduate editor, Kristen Gallahue, and our graduate assistant editor, David Mueller. I'm Kristen Gallahue. I'm a PhD student here at NC State. I'm the graduate editor of Philanthropy Journal. I'm David Mueller. I'm the assistant graduate editor at the Philanthropy Journal. I'm also a student in the Master's in Technical Communication here at NC State. How did you get involved with Philanthropy Journal? Well, I came aware of the position uh, from uh, posting in our program listserv, and I had been interested in nonprofit work and also in um, doing some writing. I had another job on campus working in IT, and I was looking to transfer somewhere where I could... um, be a little more creative and interact with people more directly. How about you? How did you get involved? Yeah, I was, um, I was also, I was, it was my first year in the PhD program and I was just looking for a little bit of extra income and the, the position came over our listserv too. And I, um, yeah, I was interested in nonprofits. I had a little bit of a background, uh, working in some nonprofits in Chicago and, um, so I, I applied, um, and it ended up being a really, really great experience. And so I kind of kept on and I've been here for three years now, almost three years. Wow. It's a long Goes time. Fast, huh? I know, I yeah. know. It's, um, it's funny because I think it's part of the reason why it's gone on for so long is that I have in my head combined my research with my work here. And so in doing research as a doctoral student, I kind of have felt like I always need to be here in order to kind of have that community partner focus to the research that I do. When you started here, were you thinking that that would be the case, that you would be able to, did you have a research interest or was it something through your work at the journal that you just sort of made a connection? No, actually, um, I had a research interest. It was... um, it was a different. It was a different topic than it is now. Um, so I study maker spaces now, which, interestingly enough, do you know overlap with corporate uh, B core stuff and also nonprofits. But um, no, I think I, re- I really think I was just looking for. I was looking for some extra income, but I was also looking for something outside of academia um, that would kind of tie me to a community. What has happened though is that my research is necessarily community-focused because of my work here. So So you were trying to get outside of academia, but it just wouldn't let you go. (laughs) (laughs) As it turns out, (laughs) very much yes. Uh, Yeah. Can you talk about a story that you worked on that made a connection with you that sort of maybe was a breakthrough um, in, in your work here where um, you felt personally involved in the conversation? I found out about an organization called Girl Develop It, and I found out about it through some channels, um, you know, in my own technology life. Um, Adafruit had posted something about, about Girl Develop It, and when I looked it up, I realized they were holding, um, they were holding classes in Raleigh, um, they kind of center in these these 
tech capitals. There's there's definitely ones, and they they do a lot of work in Silicon Valley. But they've they've moved some of their programming, their chapters to the Raleigh Durham area, and um, their model. Like when I started diving into doing some some of the preliminary research, their model was really interesting to me. They the executive director talked to me about how she would go to conferences or workshops and how she would be the only person there who had revenue as a nonprofit. A lot of the conversations were about how to access grants or how to, you know, raise money, fundraise, but she was creating a revenue model and it was to teach women how to develop, how to code. Um, and so it was kind of this kind of like dirty word to say that uh, your service recipients were going to pay money to access your services. But the thing was like they only they only charge like $25 for classes that normally would cost thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was a revenue model and that's kind of that was that was looked down upon, she had this really, really balanced idea of what revenue should be for her recipients. And because of that revenue, they can create scholarships for, you know, people who can't afford the $25. Um, So not only was it this interesting moment for me to learn about a technology uh, opportunity for women in the triangle, which is part of my research interests, but also it got me thinking about how I could incorporate a revenue model into the kind of strategic plan I'm working on for my research, which is a kind of catch-all makerspace. So how do you get people who can't afford, you know, uh, the materials for a 3D printer, how do you get them in to use your workshop or use your technology or use your facilities? Um, Instead of charging $400 a month like some makerspaces do, um, you have you know, a graduated uh, income plan or you have these low stakes revenue models to get yourself some money, uh, but also to keep things accessible. So it just kind of opened up this really interesting model that actually really informed how I'm looking at the actionable part of my research. So that's a good question. So what about you? I know you've only worked on a few stories so far, but what has been interesting to you on a personal level that's changed something about how you think about your personal work or life? Well, that this is an easy one for me because uh, I worked on a feature recently that... Um, I sort of uh, discovered in my private life, outside of the journal, um, a couple of my friends are running a nonprofit or starting a nonprofit that um, is sort of a community organization for people in the service industry, which I, for many years, worked as a bartender and managed restaurants and had was very familiar with that world. Um, and their basic premise was they wanted to give people in the service industry um, sort of on two fronts. One, give them an opportunity to participate in community action Mm -hmm. because a lot of this stuff happens 
at a time when people in the service industry are at work. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't come to a meeting at 5 o'clock on a Monday if you're waiting tables. Exactly. Or a Friday, for sure. Um, weekends, too. So that, and then also to connect people, to be a resource to connect them with services they might need, like, um, for example, substance abuse counseling, um, and just to sort of serve as a hub so people in the service industry don't feel like they're insulated from those sorts of community resources, whether it's participating or receiving service. Yeah. And it was interesting for me because, A, I knew the people doing it, uh, and it sort of brought people from my uh, social world into the nonprofit sector, brought it into that kind of focus. But also, from a writing perspective, having to explain the challenge of involving people in the service industry and some of the basic community resources that everybody else gets. Like, I would just, after having worked in that sector, I would just sort of take it, you take it as just a given. You don't, you don't really analyze it or think about it anymore. And so when I had to write this article and sort of explain that to an audience why this was a necessary service area, um, I had to pull myself out of it a little bit and think and try to imagine what it'd be like if you didn't had never thought about the person who's fixing your drink or serving your meal and what you know the challenges they might have from that schedule. So it kind of tied everything up for me in an interesting way, um, different parts of my own experience and the work I was doing. The cool thing about that article too is that I actually, I used to work in the service industry here in Raleigh and um, I was also, when I was reading it, I was thinking about those things that you're talking about is like how other people wouldn't recognize the kind of struggles that go that you go through, like specifically with substance abuse, right? What does everyone do when you get off work? You go and you drink together and that becomes a problem for a lot, a lot of people. Um, and I actually shared that article with some of my former like industry friends and they were blown away that this was like this this opportunity for them. So that that article actually that kind of touched my circle too like that there were people that I knew this this could help that I knew were like asking questions and that there was a a need in their lives that wasn't being met. So that was really cool. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So TNE is really interesting because it kind of like gets at both of our interests slash skill sets. Um, so, what to you, what what do you think is the importance of TNE or the value of TNE or the exciting part about TNE? Well, I think sort of baked into the format, the audio format, is that opportunity to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. and to bring what you're doing into their routine, into their life. People listen to podcasts at their desk, they listen to them in the car. It's sort of a very common and viable form of um, education, entertainment, you know, engagement. And um, I think you, the best stuff you listen to really makes you feel like you're there and you know the people you're listening to. Uh, you're a part of a world, you know, it's a window. And so I think it's thinking about the work we've been doing in print and the conversations we've been having in order to develop that. I think it's an opportunity to sort of um, bring the experiential aspect of that forward and give people more direct access to it, which is something I think just working with audio in general 
it's an opportunity you have to do and from a production standpoint that's part of the craft is um, creating something that will engage people at that level. What you said about that access point I think is what has always interested me about new media in general and that's coming from my research background and my theoretical background is that there's a degree of separation in our articles when we say so-and-so says whatever, right? right? It's that, you know, it's that third party kind of assumed you, which is saying that a person is saying something. And that in some ways separates the audience from what is actually happening. Whereas video content or audio content, you know, you are saying exactly what you're saying. I don't need to kind of interject to tell you or to tell the audience, David says this. It's, you know, it's there. It's self-evident. Um, and I think one of the things, I mean, I'm interested. I'm always, always, always interested in storytelling. That's at the core of everything I do from my background as a, as a poet to my research to this here at PJ is like, how and why do we tell stories? And part of that is that they are self-evident. They don't require justification in the ways that a third party telling someone else's experience does. Um, someone telling their own experience is a kind of witnessing and a kind of... Um, that's a good word for it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's self-evident. I mean, that's the best, the best way I can put it. And so I'm excited to be able to... Um, to be able to give nonprofits an opportunity to be self-evident, to not have to justify themselves, which is so much of what we do, right? right? Um, to just speak freely and openly um, from experience. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. I mean, I think the times when I am most proud of the work that we do is when we tell good stories and you, know, you could ask okay how do you know when you tell a good story and I think it's when I see something shared or I um, am in a conversation with someone over the phone like for our feature stories and they kind of it, sometimes it's not even like it's barely audible but it's like this kind of sigh that someone will give where it's just like or like a gasp, I don't know, some kind of like <laughs> exchange of air where it's clear that they've they've had this kind of embodied reaction to this new knowledge that's come that's come about, um, and so through the conversation, through the conversation, right? Um, and you know, we talk about that internally as this aha moment, but I actually think it's it's it to me aha reads as like very cognitive. And I think the way that I experience it is actually very, very embodied. It's, it's, I, I, I can imagine this person on the other, other phone or other side of the phone, like, I don't know, breathing a sigh of relief or something because there's, there's some new way that they've come to understand their work that f makes them feel a little bit more at peace. So. The easiest thing to be proud of in doing this work is that moment when you feel like you've helped somebody else, whether help them to realize something about their own work or just made them feel like there's somebody who gets it, you know? And I think that's when you're really listening to somebody and trying to give them, you're not interrogating them like an investigative journalist. You're trying to give them a space to talk about their work and to be reflective about it. That moment when it does click into, into place on any number of levels, that's really rewarding. 
that's what you're after. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's harder to get at than others, and you never know exactly how you're going to get there until you're on the phone or you're talking to somebody in person because everybody's different. But, you know, that sort of, that, I think that also ties in with the idea we were talking about, about giving somebody that direct experience, an audience that direct experience, because we experience that moment in a conversation where someone, but through having the opportunity to be reflective about their work or just communicate what they're doing, um, has that sort of embodied response. Mm-hmm. And then it's our job to translate that. But that's really hard because it's sort of, you're talking about something kind of basically ineffable in some ways, you know? And so the chance to listen in on it and hear it um, is, there's something more direct about it. Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. The Nonprofit Experience is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gullihue. Our graduate assistant editor is David Mueller, and our communication assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. Thank you.